Amen. Well, it's been another rough week, for me at least. Um, and that doesn't even have to do with church stuff. That's just um, finding out that Hostess has gone out of business. Um, at least, wait, I'm 46 years old. What 46-year-old kid did not have Twinkies in his lunchbox? I mean, his Metal Dukes of Hazard lunchbox. And when I was a kid, I was always told that, Tommy, those things, will, it's like it was right up there with if you swallow gum, it will be in your stomach for seven years. It, it was up there with, the, if you put the Twinkies, will not go bad. Right, because you ask your mom, Mom, you can have some Twinkies. We should eat them before they go bad. Those things never go bad. Well, well this week, they're, they're gone, I guess. They will be. And it's interesting, right, because I've seen a lot of stuff on the Internet that is now connecting um, the Mayan calendar with Twinkies, right, Twinkies? Twinkies can never go bad, and yet the Mayan calendar ends in three weeks. So three weeks before the world is supposed to end, Twinkies disappear. And I've seen several memes that say, well played, Mayans, well played. You see, we've been looking at this book of of Revelation, and if you remember, all the way back to a year ago, the reason I'm preaching the book of Revelation in some sense has to do with the Mayans. I was watching the Discovery Channel and there was a special about how the Mayans said that the world will end on December 21st at 11 p.m., but they didn't say Greenwich, Mean Time, or Pacific, so we're still in the dark there. The world is going to end, and I put the TV on pause, looked at my wife, and said, I'm preaching Revelation. I'm going to beat the Mayans to the punch. And she was knitting, or saying, she said, that's nice, honey. It kept going. But I determined I would do it. And so the, if... if this, this past year, the reason I've been in the book of Revelation at some level, we say, well played, Mayans, well played. You see, and this morning we're going to look at a text um, that really is maybe the most controversial. I, th- I was thinking this morning, may, I think one reason a lot of people, at least Presbyterians, don't preach through the book of Revelation is because you have to preach this passage when you do it. And yet this morning, hopefully, we make it uh, clear and uh, understandable. Before we jump into the text this morning that we uh, read for the Lectio, Lectio Continua, we need to do a little bit of review. And so the first thing I want to point out to you is just this. I want you to remind you of the purpose of the book and then this sort of crazy Latin term. Remember, the purpose of the book is pretty simple. It's to tell us, it's to teach the church, first of all, that Jesus has won in the past. He is completely and utterly one. He has defeated death. He has defeated sin. The curse that, that came upon us because of Adam, Jesus, has borne himself on the cross. And when he rose from the dead, all of that was taken care of. So when it comes to our deliverance from our sins, there is nothing more to be won. It is completely and utterly finished in the past. Jesus won it. Remember, Revelation 19 is often called the final battle, but I told you last week the reason there is no fighting in Revelation 19 is because the final battle happened at the cross. There's nothing more for Jesus to do. On the other hand, we've learned that the book of Revelation teaches us not only that Jesus has won in the past, but that he will win in the future. In other words, he will make effective the victory on the cross. He will make it effective throughout the whole earth. And so not only will he, he reconcile those um, whom he has called to himself, but you know, the book of Colossians and other places says that he will reconcile all things to himself through his blood. And so Jesus has won in the past. Jesus will win in the future. But one of the things I think that's most important, that's often overlooked about the book of Revelation, is it teaches us that Jesus not only won in the past and will win in the future, but that he is winning right now. In spite of everything that looks evidence to the contrary. You look around the world and you say things are going crazy, things are hard, things are bad. And the book of Revelation says, let me do this for you. The word apocalypse means to pull back a curtain 
And the book of Revelation says, let me pull back a curtain so you can see what's the reality behind what you see. And the reality behind what we see is this one named Jesus. Who on one hand, he's the lion from the tribe of Judah. Remember John, look, and he says, I looked and I saw a lamb who had been slain. And last week we saw Jesus riding to war and he had this name written on his thigh and on his robe, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is Lord over everything right now, despite any evidence you might think there is to the contrary. So that's the purpose. Now what do I mean by this, this, uh, this term analogia fidei, right? Basically this, what that means is that whenever you look at a very difficult passage in Scripture that you let the more simple passages help your interpretation. Or, or in other words, when something seems confusing, look to the rest of the Bible to unconfuse it for you. And so when you look at a passage like this one we're going to look at this morning, Revelation chapter 20, the, it's the only place in the whole Bible that uses the word millennium. The only place, and it uses that word six times. And so what do we have to do? How do we know what that means? We need to look at the rest of the Bible to figure out maybe what that means and the rest of the book of Revelation, of course. There's something else I want to remind you of because it's going to come up a few times this morning, and it's this whole idea of recapitulation. I've talked to you about that a number of times, and recapitulation is just a theological way of saying repetition. Or, you know, someone pointed out to me, I I think I've used the movie before. It's like if you've ever seen the movie Vantage Point. The movie Vantage Point is basically, it's, it's a pretty weird movie. It's about a, a, a murder, if I remember correctly, Dennis Quaid. But it's shown from the vantage point of several different people. And when you see it from different angles, it looks a little different. And this whole idea of re- recapitulation is very common in the Bible. If you've ever read the Gospels, that you know what I mean. In other words, you have four different Gospels, and in each Gospel, they're, this, they're telling us the same story, but they're giving us a different angle on the same story. Genesis 1 and 2, that's another example. Genesis 1 tells us one aspect of creation. Genesis 2 shows us something else. So, for example, if I, show, if I read this list to you, which I'll do right now, and said, here, I'm going to read you a scene from the book of Revelation. I'm going to read it in order, I'm going to, or at least summarize it in order. You have a heavenly scene. You have an angel versus Satan. Then Satan is cast down. And then you have him called the ancient serpent And then it's said that Satan's time is short, and then you see the saints being victorious, and then the saints reigning. If I ask you just off the top of your head, you've been sitting in here paying diligent attention for almost a year, you would say that, of course, is what? Revelation, that's straight out of Revelation chapter 12, correct? It is. On the other hand, if you said, well, that's Revelation 20, you would also be correct. So are the same things happening over and over again? Are they repeating themselves chronologically? Probably not. What we're getting is the same story from a different angle several times. And so you need to keep that in mind because that's going to help us understand uh, Revelation 20, at least how I understand it. So as we jump in here, there's basically three things we're going to look at. The first, you know, I would be the biggest coward in the world if I tried to preach this passage and not talk about what thousand years means, Right? I couldn't, I couldn't live with myself if I'd done that. I've worked all the way through the book of Revelation. We might as well address it. Um, the next thing we're going to look at is the vindication of the saints, and the last thing we'll look at is the defeat of Satan. Okay, so we're going to talk about a thousand years, and then we're going to talk about the, um, the vindication of the saints and the, the defeat of Satan. And I'll tell you right now, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't feel that my role this morning is to be fair. 
In other words, my role isn't to say, well, a lot of people believe this, and a lot of people believe this, and a lot of people believe this. I don't feel like my role is to be fair. My role is not to be unfair either, but my role is to tell you what I think this means. And so I'm going to show you a few of my cards this morning. Some of you have been asking for a year. So when we talk about a thousand years, what do we mean? First of all, let me read you a couple of these. Um, Notice in verse 2 it says, He sees the dragon, this is the angel, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that he must be released for a little while. So we talk about the thousand years. There are a bunch of questions we have to ask. The first question, of course, is this. Is the thousand years literal or is the thousand years symbolic? Okay? Now the first clue that you have that the thousand years is symbolic is the way the text opens. And the way the text opens, John says what? I saw. And then in verse 4, he says again, I saw. In the book of Revelation, whenever John says, I saw something, that means that, that what's coming up is symbolic. It's a vision of something. In other words, it's a description of something he's seeing, not dictation from God. And so when he says, I saw, that's the first clue that it's symbolic. The second clue that it might be symbolic is that every other number in the book of Revelation, as far as I can tell, is symbolic at one level or another. Right? That the, the lamb doesn't really have seven horns and, and you know, the dragon and Jesus don't have seven heads. All these kinds of things. There are lots of numbers in the book of Revelation. And when you dig into them, all of them are symbolic at some level. And so either this passage is the exception to the rule in the book of Revelation or the number 1,000 Millennium is symbolic. Now, if we're going to say it's symbolic, what, of what might it be symbolic? Well, it might be symbolic of the perfect, huge number. You know, for, for example, I was, I was watching, one of my daughters and I were flipping through the channels last night, and it was right at the end of the movie Dumb and Dumber. You've seen that movie? Don't bother, but I, I, mean, I mean, I like it, but I would not recommend it to you. I remember Jim Carrey is this incredibly stupid person and he's fallen in love with this beautiful girl and he says, so do I have a chance with you? And she says, no. And he says, no chance at all. She says, maybe one in a million. And he goes, so I have a chance. (laughs) There is a chance. One in a million. In other words, she's trying to make the case that you want to know how much chance you have? One in a million. Like, no chance. That's what we tend to say, a million. Ah, one in a million. In John's day, you'd say one in a thousand, one in ten thousand. And it's also the perfect number, not just square, but cubed. In other words, a thousand is ten times ten times ten. That makes it perfect and really big. So we'll talk about that more later. So is it literal or symbolic? Honestly, I think the, the evidence says that it's symbolic. The other issue is, is it, chronologically, where does it fit? In other words, if, it, if it's chronological, if it really is a thousand years, literally, that's chronological, it, it is harder to fit between where it is in chapter 19 and the end of chapter 20. And also, um, the big question then is when. Because he, you hear me say this morning that every scholar that I read believes that there is a millennium of some type, whether you believe that uh, it's symbolic of an indeterminate time period or whether you believe it's literal uh, 1,000 years. You've got to deal with it. And so that's what we'll do now. And I'm going to show you this morning, which I have not mentioned for a year, the three different views of this passage. You see, most people, when they think of the book of Revelation, they tend to, to think only of this passage and what's your view. People ask me all the time, so what are your view? Pre-mill, post-mill, amill, what are you? 
I'm going to tell you this morning. First, we have to talk about what those things are, different approaches. How do you understand when this millennium is, how this millennium is, what it is? So the first thing, the first position we'll talk about this morning is pre-mill for a minute. And pre-mill stands for pre-millennium. And now, by the way, I need to remind you of the Burger King principle. Remember the Burger King principle is you can't say everything anytime you say anything, otherwise you end up saying nothing at all. Every one of the positions I'm giving you has sub-camps, if you will. So it's, it's hard to be fair because you paint it with a broad stroke and people, some people will inevitably disagree. But generally speaking, the premillennial position says that after when Jesus returns, at that point he will then reign on earth for a thousand years. In other words, the second coming will happen and then Jesus will reign on earth for a thousand years. Some premillennials think that's a literal thousand years. Some premillennials think that that is a figurative thousand years. And there's lots of other stuff that go along with premillennialism, but it's not all the same. You know, I couldn't help, but it's the most creative of the positions. It also says, and we've talked about this before, about rapture kind of stuff. Does God, is God's intention to rapture the church out of suffering? Or is his, is his intention to... to uh, see the church through suffering. This position, a lot of the camps in this position would say that before this happens, the church, true believers, would be raptured, will be taken out of the world, and then the world will have a time of, quote, tribulation, and then Jesus will return and set things right, and then move forward. I, I couldn't help, and I don't mean this critically, I was going through some notes this morning, and I found, came across a website that I'd saved after the rapture petcare.com there's a whole industry for people who are willing to take care of your pets after the rapture which i never understood because if if they if they if i'm gone and they, they if they were christians according to that position they would be raptured so you're basically non-christians are promising you that they'll take care of your pet after you're raptured what's to hold them accountable but apparently some people buy it there's a lot google that there's a lot of people who are spending money on that Bottom line, Jesus comes back and then a thousand year reign starts, whether you think it's literal or not. That's, it's, it's pre this thousand years. The next position is, um, is typically called post-millennialism. And again, there's different nuances of this post-millennialism says that basically what will happen is there will be a golden age of Christianity and then Jesus will come back. In other words, the gospel will be taken to the nations and more and more the gospel will win until finally, when it's almost about to have won the whole world, Jesus will come back to say, I'm back and now I can take the reins. Postmillennialism is probably the most optimistic of the views. And it says that Jesus comes after this millennium. Usually they view it symbolically after this millennium. And to, at that point, when he returns, he will just reign, period, forever. Now, it's interesting between premillennialism and postmillennialism, but I have to be careful because I don't have that much time, is premillennialism is about 150 years old, although there's some church fathers who seem to talk that way. But what's interesting is historically, premillennialism tends to be more popular when times are hard. Right? When, when times get tough, who doesn't want to hope that Jesus is going to remove us from this? Postmillennialism, on the other hand, tends to be more popular when times are good. Because when times are good, you say, well, look, Jesus is winning, life is good, you know, everything's copacetic at home. Either way, that's sort of anecdotal. What is the final position? And I don't want to, to skew your mind at all. Um, the final position is typically known as amillennialism. 
And it's, it's, a, it's one of the worst terms for something. It, it's, it's, well, it's up there with limited atonement or those kind of things because it doesn't mean what it says. Right? Ah means no, and millennium means millennium. What amillennialism says is just this. It should probably be better called inaugurated millennialism or realized millennialism. And what the amillennialist or realized millennialist believes is just this, that the millennium started when Jesus rose from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, that's when his reign started officially. And at, at, at the end of the day, he will return. And when Jesus returns, that's it. Okay, that, I mean, it's just over. Now, what does the rest of the Bible have to say about that? Well, the rest of the Bible, I think, has a lot to say about it. You've got to consider, um, when you look at passages like Matthew 25 and those kinds of things, most of the places in the gospel, it looks like when Jesus comes back, it's over. Like, that's it. There's not going to be more after that. When he comes and finishes, he has finished it. And so of those three positions, also amillennialism is, is the one that is, has been around for the longest historically. St. Augustine first articulated it, St. Thomas, Aquinas, uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther. And as I list those names, what do you, which one do you think I am? Hmm? Actually, if you've been here for a year and you've bought anything I've said about the book of Revelation, you're well on your way to being a realized millennialist. Why is that? Because premillennialism and postmillennialism, both of them more or less say that Jesus has won in the past and that Jesus will win in the future. The one that gives emphasis to the fact that Jesus is winning right now is the one that says when Jesus rose from the dead and sent his Holy Spirit to us, he is now reigning in heaven, but he's also reigning on earth and working his purposes. And now that means for us as a church, we don't wait anxiously for Jesus to come back, although we do. We wait anxiously, and at the same time, we seek to transform society as we know it. We seek to help the city of man become more like the city of God. We, help, we seek to make Babylon begin to look more like the city of God, not through laws and things, but by changing people's hearts and by living out the, what we call this Christian world and life view, bringing all of creation under the lordship of Jesus. So that's, that's where I'm coming from. And now as we jump into this, how does that affect the rest of the way you read the text? Let me look first at Satan, this whole idea of Satan being bound. Look at verse, let me read one and two. It says, John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And then in verse two, And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So there you have the thousand years mentioned twice. And it says that Satan is bound. Now you've also, you, if you're going to be consistent and say the thousand years is literal, you have to say that Satan is bound is literal. Does he really have a chain around him and is he really thrown into hell? Well, part of that gets into the idea of what is he bound from? The text is very specific about how Satan is bound. And did you notice what it said? It says that in verse 3, he was thrown into a pit and it, the angel shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Can Satan still harm the church? We know that from the rest of the book of Revelation. He can. Revelation chapter 12 says that he's constantly going after the children of the woman. Can he attack the church? Yes. Can he persecute the church? Yes. Can he harm the church? Yes. Can he deceive the true church? No. Not anymore. And part of the key to understanding that is when John calls him that ancient serpent. 
Because where do we hear that language in the Old Testament? If you go all the way back to Adam. Remember, God put Adam and Eve in the garden and told them a number of things. We tend to think he only gave them one command. He actually gave them several commands. One command that was negative was he said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the other commands that he gave them was really twofold. He says also, be fruitful and multiply, positive command, and go and rule and subdue the earth. So Adam and Eve's job was to be, besides not eating the tree, was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with God's image. In other words, the covenant community was to continue to expand. And how did Satan keep them from doing that? He deceived them. He deceived them into wanting to be like God. And through their dece- if, if Satan had his way, because of that deception, it would have been over. Remember, God said, on the day you eat of it, you surely die of that tree. And yet God intervened basically and said, I will fix it. The seed of the, the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the serpent will strike his heel. I will fix it. And so Satan's deception worked that time, frankly. It thwarted the gospel. But God's plan continues to move forward. And so Adam was God's first son. And who was his second son? Actually, this country, this nation, not country, but these people called Israel. Israel is also called God's son. And Israel was also given a commission. And their commission was to expand God's covenant community and be a light to the nations and draw the nations in. And just as Adam wanted to be like God and failed, Israel also in their deception failed because they didn't necessarily want to be like God, but they wanted to be like the other nations. So instead of living out their commission to to bring in the nations so that the nations might worship and, and give glory to God, Israel just became like them, fail. And then finally, the last Adam came, this one named Jesus. And when Jesus came, what did he do? The first thing he did was he went into the wilderness and was tempted by Satan. Satan was not able to deceive him. In other words, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. He basically relived what Israel went through. And where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And when he came out of the the wilderness, a lot of scholars say that is actually when Satan started to be bound. Because at that point, you start to hear Jesus using language like you see in Mark chapter 3. Right When he cast the demon out and the, the, the implied question, how would you do that? He says, no one can, can break into the strong man's house unless he first binds him. Or in Luke chapter 10, remember the disciples are sent out 70 and they come back and they have cast out demons and healed people and they're so excited. Do you remember what Jesus says to them? He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And my favorite in John chapter 12, let me read that to you. In John chapter 12, remember, Greeks have sought to to see Jesus, and Jesus just begins to pray, and Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify my name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd stood there and heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to them, and Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And there are lots of other passages like that. In other words, in Jesus' mind, what he was doing in, right then was defeating and binding and casting down and casting out the, the person and work of Satan. 
So that before where Satan could deceive the nations, now because of the work of Jesus, both in his life and in his death and resurrection, no longer can the nations be, be deceived. Can some people in some nations be deceived? Absolutely. But the promise is that someday in heaven, there won't be any nation that is left out. That, that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation because Satan was no longer able to deceive them because he was bound by the person and work of Jesus. And as we move on, the bigger part of this text in Revelation, I think, has to do with vindication. And if you look at verses 4 through 6, he says, And then I saw thrones and seated on them were those who had the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus or for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. He said, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So the, the, this John sees this picture of thrones. And the first question you have to ask, if you're dealing with this millennial issue, is where are these thrones? Are these people, if, if, did Jesus return to earth? And are they earthly thrones where people are ruling with Jesus for a thousand years? Well, the thrones seem to be in heaven. And part of the clue is because John is seeing this vision, but part of it is he says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. The bigger issue here is not where the thrones are necessarily, but who is on the thrones and who is off the thrones. Remember the whole book of Revelation, as you get deeper into it, it draws a very thick line in the sand. And on one side are those who follow the dragon, and on the other side are those who follow the lamb. And the ones who are sitting on these thrones are the ones who had not given in to the dragon. They're the ones who had not had the mark of the beast put upon them, not put upon their hands. And he says those are the ones who reign with Jesus for a thousand years. And then the big question, of course, and one of the most controversial things in the text, is when he says in 6, Blessed and holy are the one, is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, what is meant there by the first resurrection? The easiest explanation of that is, to, is found if you look in the rest of the New Testament. And what do I mean by that? Let me read to you Ephesians 2 real quickly. He says, And you are dead, Paul says, And you are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now worked in the sons of disobedience. And then in verse 4 he says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So it would seem from that passage, I could spend a lot of time reading other passages, that for Paul... Our, our reign with Jesus is realized. It's been inaugurated. That, if, that what God has done is, spiritually speaking, he has made us alive with Christ. That before you are a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, completely dependent and relying upon God to make us alive. Historically, people like Augustine and Calvin would say that is the first resurrection. You see, the first resurrection, those who experience the first resurrection, not only are they blessed, but nothing can harm them. Second, death can't harm you, nothing. But this is vindication as well. We'll talk about that in a minute. After, let me show you the defeat of Satan 
And then I'll show you the ultimate vindication that happens here. In verses 7 through 10, you see this defeat. And it says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. The number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. And I clearly don't have time to look at 11 chapters of Ezekiel right now. But I just give that to you for many of you who like to take it home and study. The, the end of the book of Revelation is patterned after the, the, those chapters in the book of Ezekiel. This battle of Magog. And remember, most notably in chapter 36, the valley of dry bones, the angel says to, to um, Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And he wisely says, you know. And he raises the dry bones, spiritual resurrection, whether that's supposed to directly apply to, to this passage, I don't know. But I give you that. The other thing I want to point out to you is the recapitulation of 17, 9, chapter 19, 17 through 20. Remember, re- recapitulation is the same story from a different angle. So let me read you the last few verses. He says in verse 9, or I'm sorry, in uh, verse 17, he says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God. Skip down to verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. And he said, These were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. You see, either... Chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, is a retelling of what happened in chapter 19, or there's a a consistency problem there. Because what happened in chapter 19, it was supposed to be the final battle. Did you notice who who dies in the final battle? Everyone who opposes Christ. There's no one left. I mean, after all the the great men of the earth and all the great men, uh, small or great, are destroyed, the last thing it says, it says the rest were slain by the sword that came out of his mouth. There's no people left to be destroyed. And so if this is chronological, you've got a problem. It it, it can't be chronological and come right after chapter 19. So the question is, is it recapitulation? And the answer is probably yes. And that gets back to the vindication part. What do I mean by that? Well, on one hand, you get part of the story that says, little church, look who's persecuting you. Ultimately, the dragon and the beast, they will be tossed into the lake of fire. And then you get this part that says the saints will rule with Jesus. And then you hear almost the same story, but now we hear that Satan himself will be tossed in the lake of fire. And probably it's not a different battle a thousand years apart. Probably it's the same battle from different angles. So what's the point to all this? What's the bottom line? You know, whether or not you agree with what I've said this morning about the millennium stuff, here's some things I hope you agree with. That because of Jesus' death and resurrection, Satan can no longer deceive the nations. He's been utterly defeated. Can he deceive individuals? Absolutely. Is he, is he active, roaring, looking for someone to devour? Absolutely. Can he harm the church? Absolutely. Can he deceive those whom God has called unto himself ultimately? Absolutely not, because he has been completely and utterly defeated. He won't win. Also, we see that Christians reign now in heaven with Jesus. 
In, in other words, if you're walking around all day long and you're just glum and you feel miserable. Remember I told you last week what Spurgeon said? He said, for, he said to his church, he said, some of you, he said, when you talk about heaven, you should, your face should light up. And he says, when you talk about hell, your regular face will do. But if you really understand that Jesus has won complete victory on the cross and because Jesus is seated in heaven, your representative is there and that God looks at you the same way he looks at Jesus, that should be a time of great joy for you. And what's the last thing? It's just this, is that Jesus reigns now on earth through Christians. And I don't mean that in a government sense or, or theonomistic sense. I mean that as you and I live our lives as Christians and seek to bring everything that we do under the lordship of Jesus, he reigns even now through us. And so what's the big point of this passage about the millennium? At the end of the day, I think it's about vindication, but I think it's almost, it's almost like, it's like this, and, and I was reminded of it when I was flipping through Facebook the other day looking at some things. I think I've told many of you, when I was growing up, I was a skinny kid. I mean, like, really skinny. When I was a freshman in high school... I wrestled at 100 pounds, but I never had to work to make weight, if you know what I'm saying. Sophomore, I catapulted into the 107-pound category. And by the time I joined the Army, I was a whopping 123 pounds. I even started shaving in basic training. So what's the point? Well, I was in high school, and the whole time I was in high school, I would, I would make the baseball team, but I'd never get to play. I wanted to play football, they told me I was too small. And there were other kids that I would look at. And there's one guy, his name is Dan Jones. That's not really his name. This guy, I hated him. Because every single thing he did, he did well. I remember, we didn't have someone on the wrestling team who could wrestle 180 pounds. And they just grabbed him off the street. Hey, Joe, yeah, can you come and wrestle? He won. Quarterback of the football team. Everything he did, everything he touched seemed to turn to gold. He got all the girls, all the cheerleaders, everything. And I got nothing. And several years later, I, when I was visiting home, after I'd gotten out of the army, I was visiting home, I, I stopped, pulled over to get some gas. And guess who was in the gas station? And he wasn't getting snacks. He was pumping. It was him. And I hate to say I felt good about that, but I actually did. But the point is just this, what if someone could, could, when I was 16 years old, thinking I'm just a skinny kid who's never going to amount to anything, could show me a picture in, uh, to, to where I am right now and say, Tommy, check I want to show you a picture, and this picture is absolutely true. You, right now you feel like you're just a skinny kid, but see, out, out there, you don't get the, all the girls, you get the girl. You get the princess. Her name is Judy. Cheerleaders? You're going to have them in your house. <laughs> Three of them. You are going to be more blessed than you could ever imagine. And so what you need to do now is quit worrying so much. Quit complaining. Quit sniveling. Quit thinking the world is over. Because someday your life is going to be like this. Whatever you believe about the millennium, what you know is this. It's a picture to the church saying, young church, little church, Life is hard. It looks like everything is against you. It looks like everyone's winning and you are losing. But here is the point. Let me show you this picture. Someday, you are going to be sitting with Jesus on the throne. 
Someday all the people that persecuted you will wail because they see him coming. But you, you will be a king or a prince or princess there. You see, that's the point. We get caught up in whether it's a literal millennium or it's not a literal millennium or is it going to be before, pre, post, amil. At the end of the day, the question is this. Do you believe it? Do you believe that someday you'll be sitting and seated with Jesus because it should affect your life right now? Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we continue uh, in this book, um, in some ways it gets easier from this point, and in other ways um, I pray that you would apply all these things to our hearts so that they, they help us to look around us in the world and be encouraged because we know you are in charge, Father. Uh, come, Lord Jesus, quickly. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen.